Thank you all so much for coming. I very much appreciate it. By the summer of 2014, evidence had surfaced online supporting several allegations against Pastor Mark Driscoll of Mars Hill Church. These charges included the use of a marketing scheme to achieve best-selling status for Driscoll's 2012 book, Real Marriage, as well as tactics of bullying, micromanagement, and shunning used to suppress information and stifle dissent. After former leaders posted confessions seeking repentance for sinning as, and being sinned against, church authority, a protest was organized outside the main facility, which had shifted from Seattle to suburban Bellevue. Although it is highly unusual for Christians to publicly demonstrate outside a church against the mishandling of administrative and spiritual matters, it was not my first experience standing among protesters a stone's throw from Mars Hill's parking lot. Driving past the suburban facility where Driscoll now spent Sundays, in a mall complex sprawling with buildings so uniform it was easy to lose a sense of space entirely, I tried to imagine what sermons in the beige faux cathedral planted next to an equally looming yet non-distinct Barnes and Noble, would feel like by comparison to those I had attended from 2006 to 2008 in a renovated hardware warehouse in Ballard. While the issues cleverly summarized in colorful slogans on placards raised important questions, it was a 30-minute video posted to the Mars Hill website that inspired ex-staff and congregants to mobilize behind the rally cry, we are not anonymous. This performance began with Driscoll sitting down in a simple wooden chair in the imposing Bellevue Sanctuary, his figure flanked by rows of empty seats rather than large screens, the pulpit lectern on stage out of focus behind his left shoulder. The camera angle was such that it felt as though Driscoll was facing me from where I sat, with laptop open at my desk. His complexion was ruddy but grizzled with salt and pepper stubble. The only prop that appeared throughout his delivery was a leather-bound Bible which he physically and verbally gestured with and to in the video's opening moments. Hi, Mars Hill, Pastor Mark here. I wanted to give you a bit of an update on the season that we have been in and continue to be in. And I was thinking about it, and when I was 17 years of age, Jesus gave me this Bible through a gal named Grace, who is of course now my wife. And Jesus saved me when I was 19 in college as a freshman, reading this Bible. And I started opening this Bible when I was nearly 25, and Grace and I were a young married couple in our rental home. We felt called to start Mars Hill Church, and so we would have some people over for a Bible study. And there were not a lot of people, so we didn't have a full service. Instead, I would sit in this chair, and I would open this Bible, and just teach to a handful of people, or a few handfuls of people that would show up in our living room. And that grew to be Mars Hill Church. Now that I'm 43, almost 44, looking back, it's, it's overwhelming if I'm honest. It's shocking and amazing and staggering and wonderful. What Jesus has done has far exceeded even what I was praying for or hoping for or dreaming of. After this introduction littered with references to the Bible in his hands, a material manifestation of God's hand in Mars Hill's successful growth as well as his own spiritual authority, Driscoll explained that the purpose of this video was to communicate in a way that was godly by directly addressing congregants in a manner that was intended as a means of loving you and informing you. Within the first five minutes of this performance, publicly disseminated online, yet purportedly broadcast for an audience of intimates, Driscoll made the statement that many I later spoke with attributed with triggering the protest. During this season as well, I've been rather silent, and there are some reasons for that. First of all, we, including myself, needed to determine what exactly was happening 
If I'm real honest with you, at first it was just a little overwhelming and a bit confusing. As well, one of the things that has been complex is the fact that a lot of people we are dealing with in this season remain anonymous. And so we don't know how to reconcile or how to work things out with people because we're not entirely sure who they are. And so that has, that has made things a little more complex and difficult as well. Stunned, I looked at my browser loaded with tabs open to sites with names such as Joyful Ex Exiles, Repentant Pastor, Mars Hill Refuge, and We Love Mars Hill, with multiple, multiple testimonies to spiritual, emotional, and financial exploitation were posted with the author's name clearly identified. My initial sense of betrayal seemed unreasonable, given I had no personal attachment to any of the people in these stories, had not seen Driscoll preach live for years, and had never considered him an authority figure. Well, flexing its phallic power not, online, Marcel promised marital orgasms. As I was not the video's intended audience. With Viagra, there was no rationalization. Biblical porn was produced as a confessional discourse how and surveillance I technology that titillated and monitored. I was not physically not shaken as I watched Driscoll lie to my face through the computer screen, but my agitation was palpable and did not recede during the entirety of his message. Even more disconcertingly. I found myself not only hoping, but also believing that he was going to change course and repent of his sin, as he had admonished audiences repeatedly and vehemently to do. I kept waiting for an acknowledgement of the specific charges of abuse and the suffering of those who had had the courage to openly testify to their prolonged spiritual and psychological toll. When that did not happen, instead of doubting Driscoll, I started wondering if I had misheard or misunderstood. In a sense, I kept the faith alive until the final minutes of his message. Lastly, many of you have asked and myself and other leaders, how can we be in prayer? I genuinely appreciate that. I would say, pray for your local leaders. They're dealing with things that, that I'm not dealing with. And uh, there are some things in this season that are just, they're just, they're strange, uh, unique. For example, at one of our churches, someone is folding up pornography and putting it in our pew Bibles just all kinds of things in this strange season. So that when the lead pastor gets up and says, hey, if you're new or not a Christian, we've got some free Bibles in the pew, feel free to pick one up and go to page whatever for the sermon. And they open it up and they're exposed to pornography. And this can be adults or children. And so now there's a team having to go through our Bibles and take the pornography out to make sure their Bibles are clean on Sundays. The working title of my book on the church had been biblical porn for a couple of years. I was also in the process of writing a chapter on spiritual warfare, and never was my sense of it so keen as I unexpectedly burst out laughing at the story's end. It was a full-body laugh that erupted from my gut and lasted for a long time, but not because I found the act of vandalism described, described particularly funny. After all the lies I had listened to, I highly doubted the authenticity of this anecdote, but that did not make it any less affective. The definition of affect taken up by many political theorists, among them Brian Masumi, is the power to affect and to be affected. Masumi writes, writing through affect is not just reflecting on it, it is thought taking the plunge, a process of change that is the first stirrings of the political, flush with the felt intensities of life. The empirical examination of affect complicates distinctions between macro and micro power, what philosophers Gil Deleuze and Felix Guattari call the microphysics of desire. In anthropological theory, William Mazzarella considers affect as carrying tactile, sensuous, and perhaps even involuntary connotations. 
implying a way of apprehending social life that does not start with the bounded intentional subject, while at the same time foregrounding embodiment and sensuous life. As Mazzarella's formulation suggests, affect is difficult to explain by, to analyze by conventional discourse discursive methods, given it is radically grounded in the body to the extent that it cannot be articulated or rendered immediately intelligible in language. Thus, the clunky hyphenet used by anthropologists to describe ethnographic fieldwork, participant observation, becomes usefully troubled in the examination of affect. Participa participant observation does not occur in the field. It is of the field. Laughter is such a field. Philosopher William Conley describes laughter as a manifestation of surface, surplus affect that can trigger side perceptions at odds with the dominant drift of perception and interpretation, such that the flow of thought is interrupted to open up a window of creativity. It was not what Marx said that made me laugh, but the sense that we were sharing an inside joke. This surplus affective value did not register in his rhetoric, reside in a commodity, or remain self-contained but manifested as conviction so unfocused, it emitted both within and without me. In the circulation of what feminist theorist Sarah Ahmed posits as an affective economy, emotions play a crucial role in the surfacing of individual and collective bodies to the ways in which emotions circulate between bodies and signs. After the video ended, I sought to interpret and identify what I was feeling in emotional terms and settled on paranoia figuring this irrational response would quickly subside. After all, Marx's employee of hyperbole and humor to excite and seduce audiences were renowned and considered among his gifts and strengths as a communicator. However, rather than fading, the intensity and unpredictability of sensations impossible to pin down kept me awake nights and indoors at my desk, scanning the internet for the unknown and unknowable. Information, affirmation, safety, and from whom or what exactly. At first, I rationalized my feelings in terms that I could understand and articulate as a feminist anthropologist, social justice. Put simply, I desired recognition for those whose suffering went unacknowledged. Despite its good intentions, such an explanation was no excuse for the disturbing and overpowering need I had to do something without knowing what that could be, other than endlessly tracking the explosion of media coverage surrounding Driscoll and the church. While Mark's opening posture and closing story provided the perfect tactile validation for my book's title, beyond anything I could ever dream or script, it was not until I asked permission to join the protest with former Mars Hill members via a public Facebook page entitled We Are Not Anonymous that its affective value became clearer. I had come under conviction, but not of my own sinful nature and need for salvation. I did not become born again in Christian terms, but I had to confront the troubling reality that I had desired to believe in Pastor Mark. This was, this was a desire that I did not feel I deserved, nor frankly wished to own, given I had nev never sacrificed for the church, nor ideologically seen eye to eye with Driscoll. That video haunted me with surplus affect, both possessed and inhabited, that was not truly mine. In the frantic days after watching the video, I found a link to the public Facebook group, We Are Not Anonymous. Without forethought or script, I woke up one morning and wrote a former church leader that I had not met. I'm writing for your thoughts on the question of whether my presence would be welcome at the protest this Sunday. I've been reluctant to join anything that would make anyone uncomfortable, especially as I'm a non-Christian. I'm in a strange limbo state where I'm not an insider, 
but not really an outsider either. And it's hard for me to simply watch from the sidelines with all that's happened. I never admitted that I was not a Christian or pretended to be anything but a feminist anthropologist. Openly informing those I spoke with of my identity was ethical according to my methodological training. Yet positionality was inadequate to the task of explaining my prolonged experience of liminality and displacement, a process through which I came to affectively, if not theologically, resonate with former church members. To claim any positionality in my case was feeble, a hollow gesture and ideological fiction in the face of sociality generated out of a disaggregation of self. This affective process of coming under conviction online was underway prior to 2014 and ongoing after the video's end, compelling my inquiry into distinctions between the human and non-human, materiality and discourse, as well as the boundaries con constituted and policed by the categories religious and secular. Language was not the catalyst for religious conversion. Instead, an intensification of my body's relation to itself occurred in an event encounter with other bodies, an assemblage of materialities that included Driscoll, his Bible, my laptop screen, tabs open to websites dedicated to former congregants' testimonies, and the supposed prankster putting pornography into pew Bibles. All of these bodies were affective conductors, rendering my positionality arbitrary. As I watched the video, I had no language for what I was experiencing. I could not discern divine providence or impose self-will and explanations for what was bodily unfolding. I did not ask why I wanted to believe Mark would repent to the extent that I even doubted myself, as there were no religious or personal reasons for such an investment. Instead, I kept asking how. When I described my experience of coming under conviction during the anonymous video to a former leader, how I trusted Mark would repent to the extent that I questioned myself, he emphatically gestured to my phone on the table as it was recording our conversation and exclaimed, put that down, get that in. At the wooden table where we sat, I was not the only one taking notes. I used pen and paper, he used a tablet. I'd asked permission to record our time together, an interview that lasted nearly six hours. And whenever there needed to be a pause, he would double check to see if we were recording again. Many of those I spoke with did not want to be recorded or have their names used. I understood. It was risky. I was asking people who had been socially, socially isolated out of fear of being labeled gossips or divisive to discuss events that could be read as indictments of themselves and or others, some of whom were family members or friends that remained connected to Mars Hill after they left. I asked people where they wanted to meet so they could choose whether they would be more comfortable talking at home or in public. In one Seattle coffee shop in the vicinity of a Mars Hill facility before the church officially disbanded, a former pastor spent much of our 30 minutes together glancing around the premises, informing me when someone associated with the church walked in, eyes darting and brow lightly beaded with sweat. In one home, tears surfaced in the eyes of an ex-pastor as soon as we sat down. Later during our conversation, tears welled up in mine. Many confessed that they had felt duped and betrayed as well as culpable. There was a tension between what was attributable to human will and what was attributable to divine will, individual agency, and God's sovereignty. People were not only looking to answer, but also to find answers themselves. None of my interviews with former church staff were a one-way affair. I played informant too, describing the arguments of my book, experiences at Mars Hill, and fluctuating feelings in the aftermath of its dissolution. 
From 1996 to 2014, the church multiplied into 15 facilities in five U.S. states, serving approximately 13,000 attendees as Driscoll's preaching on biblical oral sex earned him international celebrity. In sermons such as The Porn Path and an e-book called Porn Again Christian, Driscoll stated in no uncertain terms that free and frequent sex between a husband and wife is necessary to assure fidelity within Christian marriages and secure masculine leadership within evangelical churches. Our world assaults men with images of beautiful women, he warned. Male brains house an ever-growing repository of lustful snapshots, always on random shuffle. The temptation to sin by viewing porn and other visual lures is an everyday war. As Driscoll claimed, sometimes pornography is in an image, sometimes it is, it is in your imagination. His sexualized hermeneutic revealed women's body parts cloaked in biblical metaphor. Meanwhile, question and answer sessions during services encouraged congregants to text queries that materialized as soundbite confessions to sins and desires on large screens surrounding Mars Hill's sanctuary. The church's employ of visual and digital media served to amplify Driscoll's sermonizing on sex by conscripting audience participation and animating a pornographic imaginary that legitimized his spiritual authority. Biblical porn constituted Mars Hill congregants as gender-specific sexual agents and sinners who were trained to embody biblical masculinity, femininity, and sexuality. However, the affective labor of biblical porn also recruited and perpetuated bodily work and processes that were non-intentional, mobilizing conviction in calibrated and uncontrollable ways that were not always pleasurable or intelligible. My use of affective labor builds on Michael Hart and Antonio Negri's theorization. Contact that can be either actual or virtual, care entirely immersed in the corporeal, while the effects it produces are immaterial. Social networks, forms of community, biopower. In theorizing biblical porn as affective labor, I signal the critical potential of examining porn not simply as image or text, but also as imaginary and industry, or more precisely, imaginary as industry. At Mars Hill, such affective labor entailed a variety of service opportunities that primed the church's atmosphere and fostered networks of care, such as worship band, media production, security team, and children's ministry. In addition, affective labor was enlisted through inadvertent yet habituated visceral responses, gut feelings, belly laughs, glances, and gestures that excited, agitated, and exploited a desire to believe. The orchestration of this affective labor was articulated in terms of air war and ground war, with the aim to rally 1,000 churches behind one pulpit. At Mars Hill's, as Mars Hill's facilities multiplied, imperatives to support the church's propagation were framed in violent terms of combat readiness and the sexualized embodiment of visual generosity and sexual freedom by Christian wives. The theology of sex prescribed by Driscoll as biblical generated an evangelical genre of social pornography that was contingent on the free industry of congregants who, who contributed to its production, distribution, and diffusion. Practices of confession and processes of imagination were mediated and networked via nervous systems and fiber optics. In turn, fear, shame, and paranoia circulated within and well beyond Mars Hill's facilities as political and economic value that extended beyond the monitoring and management of normatively biblical gender and sexuality generating the social conviction and self-sacrifice necessary for Mars Hill's ongoing expansion beyond reason or resources, against the moral conscience of leaders, 
financial capacity of the church, and manpower available at local facilities. Precarity intensified as locations multiplied and congregants were increasingly exposed to risk in spiritual, emotional, and material ways, a constant sense of insecurity that infused the very constitution of work. During his 2008 sermon series on the Song of Songs entitled The Peasant Princess, Driscoll sermonized center stage while a background scrim of images shifted according to emotional register. A pastor blogging about the creative team's approach to the branding of the peasant princess wrote, we knew that Pastor Mark would be preaching through the Song of Songs well in advance of the September launch date, but the direction he would take and the best way to support the sermon visually and conceptually were not as clear as we would have liked. Going into the time of the greatest growth potential for a church, the fall, we wanted to make sure we took full advantage of college kids starting school and summer vacations ending. Knowing that Song of Songs would be a drawing sermon, we first began working on a sermon series branding that centered on the concept of free sex. We went with this title and began working on visual concepts for about three weeks before we found out the name was changed to Free Love to try and tone down the in-your-face title we previously had. The idea was Vegas 2050 meets Disney meets Mars Hill. To bring this Free Love theme to life, Mars Hill's production staff created an animated video introduction for the Princess series. The film's visuals mimicked Disney's doe-eyed characters and bright techno colors, while updating this template so that its color scheme reflected the techno-infused electronic keyboards pulsating in the background. A catchy bubblegum pop vibe with a pronounced bass beat that encouraged head bobbing. Green and yellow birds cavorted with a pink deer bounding across a bright meadow where a chesty grinning apple tree with well-defined pectoral muscles gyrated to the music. The Peasant Princess video invited viewers to participate in its pastoral, family-friendly scene, offering a setting that was playfully coy. Frolicking fawns winked at the audience, signifying biblical sex as pure, light-hearted fun. The flirtatious deer in the video were inspired by biblical imagery that, according to Pastor Mark, signified breasts. The petting zoo is now open, he exclaimed in week seven of the series, while the well-endowed apple tree was a meta metaphorical stand-in for oral sex. As the illustrated characters of this animated short conjured visions of Disney characters, Pastor Mark and his congregants fueled fantasies of Vegas 2050. Driscoll preached in front of a glowing cross on a as a background screen of large tube light bulbs in neon blue, green, red, orange, and yellow, oscillated like a Rorschach light bright. The cross, pulpit, and TV frame set pieces were handmade and wired by a deacon and his wife with each capable of displaying over 200,000 different colors. As Pastor Mark sermonized, the flashing hues served to highlight the tenor of his voice and tone of his message, which hewed closer to the original theme of free sex than free love. This focus on how to embody biblical sexuality for the health of marriages as well as the church afforded the perfect platform through which to encourage congregants to openly confess and regularly repent of their sexual sin for the sake of Mars Hill's security and legacy. In week seven, Driscoll preached on verses he deemed the most erotic, exotic, and exciting in scripture. While lingering over an explicit line-by-line -line reading of an ancient striptease, Pastor Mark encouraged wives to be visually generous allies, to fight with and for their husbands by providing an archive of redeemed images. By couching the temptation to view porn in terms of everyday spiritual warfare, Driscoll created a sense of urgency while suturing wives' sexual freedom to their husbands' visual nature and reinstating women as the proper objects of the male gaze. 
Men's minds involuntarily file snapshots of beautiful women, and their file is filled with images that stretch all the way back to boyhood, and they show up without warning. Every time a guy sees a beautiful woman, it's a snapshot. Click, 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 click. It starts when he's a little boy and continues throughout his whole life. It's involuntary. It's how the man is made. The result is he has an ever-growing repository of pictures of beautiful women. They show up, right? Random shuffle, without his even being prepared or aware of it. If you're married, on your way home, ask your husband. He'll confirm it. He could be sitting in traffic, driving home from work, and all of a sudden, boop, there's that gal who sat next to him in junior high. Hasn't seen her in a long time, but she's back. That file just came up. Many women don't understand this, but your husbands, if you're married, are in a war every moment of every day. As images come to them, or old images are archived for them, and they have to decide what to do with them. In response, Driscoll advised wives to be sympathetic to your husband's temptations and talk openly to encourage and support him. Be a visually generous wife so he sees you as an ally on his team. Lights on or off? On, right? Lots of guys, on. Even guys who flunked out of school are gonna pass this test, all right? Instead of fighting with him, fight for him with lots of redeemed images. Let him see and then snapshot, snapshot, snapshot. In turn, Pastor Mark articulated this objectification of women's difference as a matter of gender equality. Ladies, don't judge men for being men. Don't judge your husband for being a dude. God made men and women equal but different. Your husband was made first, but that doesn't mean he was the beta version of a human being and that woman was the fully matured humanity. You live in a culture that encourages you, all of us, to sort of assume that women are superior to men, but they're not. The culture pressures men to sympathize, to empathize, to relate, to connect with the feminine. And that's all well and good so long as it goes both ways. Women should also try to understand all that makes men men. The visual nature of men, the sexual nature of men, the aggressive nature of men. Emphasis is placed on men's visual, sexual, and aggressive nature while women's difference is performed through bodily labor that is at once sexualized and nurturing, both assertive and caring. Throughout Princess, Driscoll encouraged wives to be naked without shame in the marital bedroom while graphically depicting biblically ordained fantasies for global distribution. Although women were relegated to domesticated roles, according to Mars Hill's complementarian gender doctrine, which posits men and women as equal yet different, equally made in God's image, but ordained with distinct roles, women were crucial to the production of biblical porn and played a critical role as producers themselves. Their sexual freedom worked on behalf of not only the marriages, but also the church. Driscoll succinctly summarized how crucial this woman's work was to the future of evangelical Christianity in a statement to a room full of men aspiring to found churches affiliated with the global church planting network he co-founded called Acts 29. Those who attended an Acts 29 boot camp in 2007 were told that by Driscoll that the church planter's wife has the most important job in a new church having sex with the church planter. In this lecture, Driscoll also stated, we hold masculine male leadership in the highest esteem, yet the church is almost completely effeminate in America. There's been a wholesale departure from masculine leadership in home and church. Women and children go to church, men do not, and those men who do go to church are effeminate, worthless men. Christianity is not doing well in this country. That is why young men in urban centers are attracted to Islam. They want a masculine religion, a powerful God, something that gives them truth and that calls them as a team. While same-sex attraction, fornication, and lust were all sexual sins women testified to at Mars Hill, 
It was the withholding of sex by wives from their husbands that was the most often highlighted. In a post entitled, Not Tonight, Honey, I Have a Headache, one contributor to a church blog called Reforming Femininity wrote, Scriptures clearly states that men and women are who are married are to have sex and have it regularly. We are not to deprive one another, and what's more, men and women's bodies belong to our spouses. Scripture does not command us as, as wives to desire our husband sexually at all times. It is not a sin for a woman to lack sexual desire for her husband. The point at which it becomes a sin is when a wife is unwilling to give her husband access to her sexually. This can lead to many problems, including bitterness, resentment, sexual temptation and frustration, and a lack of confidence in the husband. Make sex a priority, rearranging whatever in life is necessary until you have given it the proper place. Remember, it's a priority in God's eyes. An entire book of the Bible is devoted to it. Here's the hardest part. Do not deny your husband sexually. According to this doctrinal understanding, husbands and wives equally possess ownership of their spouse's bodies, but in access to said bodies, wives are more prone to sexual sin than their husbands. This anonymous contributor reiterates the biblical imperative preached by Driscoll that Christian wives prioritize sex in order to secure masculine leadership at home and in church. In addition to its ambitious and vibrant presentation on stage, The Peasant Princess was a Mars, Mars Hill milestone in other ways. First, the series was video streamed via satellite, syncing live and remote services such that the congregants across the church's campuses could text message questions in real time during post-sermon Q&A sessions, simulating connectivity and suggesting authenticity to those participating as viewers. Second, Driscoll's wife Grace joined him on stage for the first time during services. Her participation challenged the complementarian understanding that no woman could preach from the pulpit, but her presence on stage was justified by Driscoll's need for a woman's perspective. Thus, Pastor Mark's smoke and hot wife, a phrase I often heard in reference to Grace, provided affective labor through both her feminine counsel and shape. After sermons, queries materialized like soundbite confessions to sexual fantasies and transgressions on screens throughout the sanctuary, confronting congregants with evidence of their sinful lusting while providing empirical proof of Pastor Mark's admonishments concerning their utter depravity. As they testified to the spiritual truth that Driscoll sexualized her hermeneutic, members were constituted as both subjects and objects of, sh of shame and desire. A reverberation effect between the servants and the questions that followed bolstered the legitimacy of Driscoll's spiritual authority and the authenticity of his exegesis while manifesting a pornographic imaginary that figured congregants as both enslaved by and witnesses to sin. Ballard, should spouses confess to each other every time they sin visually or sexually? Downtown, what if my spouse cannot compare physically to the visual temptations of the world? Bellevue, would it be sinful to videotape my wife and I being intimate? Mars Hill's cultural production of biblical porn generated and exploited technologies of surveillance that fostered the desire to submit not only to Driscoll's authority, but also to the work of being watched. Congregants' affective labor during the Q&A sessions was simultaneously voluntary and non-intentional. The use of cell phones and flat screens normalized and habituated the act of public confession, while the service's content and performance mobilized a pornographic imaginary through which the biblical truth of Driscoll's hermeneutic and his audience's sinful nature were affirmed. At Mars Hill, conviction and confession were processed as and through social media to benefit the church's cultural influence and growing empire. 
Any visitor to the Mars Hill website was a few clicks away from Christian sex Q&A, mature content, where a warning box announcing that due to the overwhelming volume and explicit content of questions texted during the Princess series, the Driscolls would blog responses to certain queries. According to the MH17 rating that appeared in a black box above these inquiries, anyone under 17 was required to get adult permission before viewing them. Given the church's target audience was young men who were presumably pornographically challenged, this play on the NC-17 film rating appeared to be a tantalizing teenage joke rather than a serious attempt to warn readers. Under the MH17 warning, the Driscolls blogged responses to questions such as, can I perform anal sex on my wife? With advice that encouraged further research online. Do your homework. Be careful if your wife is willing Anal sex is technically permissible, but for a host of reasons may not be beneficial. We do not endorse everything on this website, but if you want to read some commentary on the issue from Christian married women, you can go to Christian nymphos. Queries such as, my wife likes to masturbate me upon occasion and wants to know how to get better at it. What should she do? Or is it okay for me and my wife to masturbate ourselves if we are together and both turned on by it? Or is it okay for a spouse to masturbate himself or herself during the act of lovemaking? We're also answered with candid encouragement. Yes, the combination of masturba masturbating during the act of lovemaking may physically heighten the degree of pleasure. For example, many wives cannot climax from normal intercourse, but can climax from the stimulation of their clitoris, which is not a point of contact during normal sexual intercourse. This can be pleasurable for both spouses, considering that most men are visual, and this could be a display of visual generosity for him. In their responses, the Driscolls encouraged mutual masturbation as a form of couples therapy that encouraged those seeking their advice to reach out and touch themselves through the church network. While flexing its phallic power online, Mars Hill promised marital orgasms as explosive as those procured with Viagra. Biblical porn was produced as a confessional discourse and surveillance technology that titillated and monitored, ma monitored audiences live and remote. A holy combination of sexual tease, biblical counsel, and sex education, biblical porn proliferated as and through popular culture every time porn was typed into a search engine. Thus, Driscoll's pornification of the pulpit was achieved not simply through sexualized exegesis, but entanglements of body and technology the commodified biblical porn as a social pornography of popular culture. A former congregant from a location out of Seattle blogged on how this dynamic affected his marriage. My wife started listening to the Peasant Princess series and over the course of listening to it showed some disturbing signs of paranoia. Driscoll tells women that sex is critical to a happy marriage and unless they put out, they are allowing Satan to sleep between them and their husbands. He directs women to pleasure their men orally pleasure them daily, and be submissive to their needs. My wife became insecure and fearful. She began having dreams about me cheating on her and began quietly checking up on me out of fear. It was as though she was worried about meeting Driscoll's expectation for her in our marriage more than my own. Mars Hill wives were convicted of their duty to embody free sex in order to combat demons and maintain fidelity within marriage. In turn, an atmosphere of spiritual warfare spread paranoia by proliferating invisible enemies at once satanic and technological. The various technologies employed by the church to promote paranoid conflations of freedom and control were not merely instruments but agents themselves. Bodies that inspired and exploited gendered yet collective affective labor in the cultural production of a pornographic imaginary that was mobile, autonomous, and infectious. 
My experience with how this paranoid dynamic played out on the ground cannot be summarized by the content of the workshops I attended on gender and sexuality or by the conversations I had with women at such events. Rather, it was something that I repeatedly noticed people noticing about me, but which remained unspoken. Soon after I began attending Mars Hill, it became readily apparent that my singleness mattered. I do not recall ever being asked if I was single, but it was a term often used within Mars Hill parlance, particularly when the topic concerns sexual sin. Abstinence workshops on maintaining maturity within singleness were specifically and only designed for women. My singleness was not an aberration, and it did not classify me as an outsider in the same way that my status as a non-Christian did. The first couple of questions asked of me in the briefest of encounters were whether or not I was a Christian and how long I had been attending Mars Hill, but I was never directly asked whether I was single. Instead, it was the lack of a wedding band that branded me. I came to expect furtive glances, downward glances to my ring finger regardless of whether I was talking with a man or a woman. In a distinct manner I had never felt or encountered before, my lack of marital status ritually provoked an acute dis-ease. In order to learn more of the church's complementarian doctrine, I attended a woman's training day in January 2007 called Christian Womanhood in a Feminist Culture. Soon after my arrival, I spoke with a pregnant woman in her mid-20s who shared that she began attending Mars Hill four years prior after meeting her husband, who was already a member. During our conversation, she asked which of the breakout sessions I had signed up for. The first half of the day, we would all attend the same lectures as a group. Roughly 400 women were in attendance for this free event open to non-members. But while registering online, we were asked to choose two or four breakout sessions in the afternoon that addressed specific sin issues such as romanticism or a sexually charged, charged fantasy life inspired by the reading of too many romance novels and the viewing of too many Hollywood chick flicks gluttony, modesty, and sexual sin. As we compared our notes and our choices, my companion said that she did not struggle with romanticism or sexual sin, but wanted to ensure that gluttony and modesty would not become problems post-marriage. She then mentioned a book she read for a Mars Hill class in which the author explained that, as she described it, if you're out at a restaurant and your husband sees a beautiful woman, the waitress, for example, even if they don't flirt or anything, he will remember her. My companion then glanced down, spied my naked ring finger, and said quietly, of course, I don't like thinking that way. I found myself blushing for no reason. Of the eight women I shared lunch with that afternoon, I was the only single and the only one attending the romanticism and sexual sin sessions. In contrast to my lunchtime companions, every woman I spoke with in the physical and spiritual adultery session, there was a last minute change in the title, was single. The room was packed, and within moments of sharing her testimony, the speaker, an elder's wife, was sobbing. She cried throughout her confession to sexual sins pre-marriage. Teenage transgressions traced back to sexual abuse suffered as a child that she had never confronted or even recounted until she sought biblical counseling for another seemingly unrelated issue. She also testified to experiencing physical, mental, and emotional exhaustion from taking on too much work in service to the church. This compulsion to always be available to help others, she confessed, was due to the feeling that it was the only way that she could finally feel worthy of being loved, especially by God. I listened as she repeatedly described herself as a whore, both sexually and spiritually, and sensed the entire room crying. At times, the collective weeping was so overwhelming that it was difficult to hear the speaker, even though she used a microphone and I was sitting in the center of the room. 
When I rejoined my lunchtime companions for the closing large group session in the sanctuary, they immediately asked in excited but hushed tones about what I had witnessed. In the few minutes it took me to find them, the emotionally raw testimony of the sexual sin session had become a buzz topic. When one of the women remarked that she was looking forward to listening to the adultery session after the audio recordings were uploaded to the Mars Hill website, I told her that I doubted that what I had just heard would be publicly shared online. It was too personal, I said. My companion did not reply, but simply looked at me, gently smiling. As we sailed into our seats for a final prayer, it was announced that the audio recordings of all of the sessions would be accessible via Mars Hill's media library within a few weeks. I later discovered the sessions were not only available as audio downloads through the church's website, but also the iTunes podcast, Mars Hill Church, Everything Audio, which included the full names of each speaker. Even as they were being taught to trust in God's grace and sovereignty, women were called on by the church and each other to habitually and publicly confess to sexual shame in the unending process of seeking repentance, challenging the misconception that they were not equal to men insofar as their capacities to sexually sin was concerned. By freely offering their sexual transgressions and sexualized bodies as signs and commodities through which to promote and animate biblical porn, women's voluntary labor contributed to its viral and visceral capacity to globally network affective political and economic value. Thank you very much. Oh, sure. Um, so the question basically was around Driscoll's education. Um, <laughs> yes, he did, apparently. I mean, as far as I know, he graduated. Um, and he had a degree in communication. Um, and he did do also um, ministry. Uh, it was more online and by distance um, with a theological seminary in Portland. Um, I can't remember the name. Western, thank you very much. So Western. Um, so he did um, have education. How about his wife? Did she have any education? So far as you know? Yes, she did. She also went to college. I can't remember where Grace, where did Grace go? Wazoo. Wazoo? She also went to Wazoo. She graduated? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, so the, I do not want, um, you know, Mark Driscoll is a smart man. You know, he's, he's, I, I never, nothing in this book, um, I hope, comes across as being condescending or um, dismissive um, because I was very taken with um, the way in which the, the production team, the, I mean, everything at Mars Hill ran very, very smoothly and was very, very well done. I mean, it had this huge following in Seattle because of that. It sounds like a Cajun yeah, I took it really seriously. <laughs> it had a profound effect on me. Um, you know, it, again, in part, I mean, when I started going, I was actually doing my dissertation research as a doctoral candidate in anthropology on um, same-sex marriage politics, so on gay marriage in Seattle and the legalization thereof. Um, I had no intention of doing a book about the church, none. Um, so I was going to Mars Hill initially because I was interested because uh, Driscoll wasn't talking openly in an anti-gay marriage kind of way from his sermon, from his pulpits, uh, from the pulpit. Um, there weren't protests 
you know, that Mars Hill was organizing, like other churches were doing in the area. Um, so I was fascinated by, okay, what is this church saying about gay marriage at all? Because I wasn't finding anything initially. Um, then it just took a moment for me to figure out that this was a far more pernicious dynamic that was going on. Um, it wasn't so, you know, pronounced in terms of a politically overt um, anti-gay stance, um, but it was, I mean, Mark's first sermon, it's not in this section, I guess, but um, in the introduction of the book, I talk about the first sermon I went to, and before the sermon begins, Mark is on stage talking about Talladega Nights with Will Ferrell in it, that movie, right? Um, and there's that joke uh, about little baby Jesus. Little baby Jesus, thank you for my smoking hot wife. So Mark said that joke and went like this on stage. Yeah, as though his wife was standing. I mean, she wasn't there physically, but he gestured as though she was there. And this was before 2007? This was, this was sermon, yeah, this was a sermon 2006, fall. So... Um, so that fascinated me because here's this church talking very, this pastor talking very openly about sex at a time when sexual freedom wasn't something that was being bantered about in the gay marriage legalization, this right? A weird church. Wasn't that understood from the get-go? I mean, this has been from a whose get-go? My get-go. Okay. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> I mean, Mars Hill, I love the name. I don't know what it means, but I love the name. But it it's from the Bible. So So it is an, it was an independent evangelical church, right? Which means it had its own governing body, right? It didn't have any sort of de denominational oversight, as you just you know were referencing, basically. Um, I would say that Driscoll's theology was very much his own. Now, and that's not to say, though, that, you know, there were pastors, I mean, there have been books written by Christian authors, for example, Tim LaHaye, um, if you know the, the um, Left Behind series, Tim LaHaye's series, Left Behind, it's published a while ago now, I guess in the 70s or 80s, but um, he wrote a series with his wife about sex that was pretty explicit, um, had some drawings in it and such. I mean, it's not so unique that a church would be talking about sex and sexual freedom within marriage and within Christian marriage especially being really good, <laughs> right? Um, but, but, but what I was fascinated by was, first of all, again, the ways that Mark would talk about this in terms of women's having to be particularly sexually free and the genderedness of that power dynamic. Um, as well as the fact, again, the technologies aspect that comes out a bit in what I spoke to. Um, the technology seems very modern, and the, and the um, philosophy seems very regressive. Mm. Um, yeah, it just, it just, and particularly in a town like Seattle, it's just hard to believe that... I'm not surprised it's in Seattle. Okay, well, and then the last question, I'm sorry to keep talking, but... Mm. Um, was that the main focus of this church, or, or was there a main focus focus, peace in the world, or, you know, environmental, whatever the hell. I mean, what else did they talk about? Growth. Church growth. Money, in other words. Multiple, well, I, I work, it wasn't prosperity gospel, but it was about replicating, multiplying facilities. That's where the labor went in. So, so one of the things that also was interesting to me when I first started attending is I noticed Mark would talk about tithes and talents. So if you can't give tithes, because again, lots of young people went to this church. A lot of college-age students went to this church, right? So, um, 
<laughs> you don't have a lot of money. Um, and he would openly recognize that, right? Um, but he would say, but if you give your talents, then you're also giving to your church. And so that was, again, that's why labor is in my subtitle. So labor is thought about in very different ways throughout the book. Um, and one of the ways that I think about the exploitation of labor is the exploitation of that volunteer labor, especially when people start becoming shunned and exiled when they would just simply speak up and say, you know, not even anything very divisive or, or dissent, or I, that's almost too strong a word, but just say something that could be construed as not um, resonant with what Mark was preaching or what Mark's vision for the church was or whatever. Um, then, it, you know, people might get called out for that or, you know, women would get labeled gossips, men would be labeled wolves, you know. Um, I love being a gossip, big deal. But at any rate, so, I, there should be, I think there's probably more questions. Oh, yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> sorry. I do want to move around the room. <laughs> Thank you though, I appreciate your engagement. Lynn, yeah. Yeah, so I was really interested in your description at the beginning of your response to the video. And I was really curious, do you view that, your experience as sort of an illustration of exactly what was going on in the church, that there's this sort of attachment to this man, that, that he's just, Sure. So the question was about why, you know, start the book the way that I did. Was that resonant to my mind with other people's experiences and their their, their attraction? Um, I would say their affective attachments to Mark. Um, so I use affect to steer away from charisma because charisma is so much about the individual and the individual's authority. And while certainly, again, everything I'm speaking to does certainly, um, you know, has an authoritarian kind of tone to it, no question. But I wouldn't say that Mark was simply charismatic and that was it. You know, again, there were so many different kinds of relationships that developed through the church, right? Um, but in relationship to my, my actual story that I began with, um, yes. I mean, I do feel as though like I, I mentioned, it was from the time that I started attending in 2006. <laughs> and I, my life happened, you know. Like, that's, that's the other part of this story that I think is really cool. And it comes out a little bit in that little bit that I read to you, but I, I fleshed it out a little bit more in the intro. As I had, you know, I finished my dissertation in 2010. Again, I did not write my dissertation on this. I started a whole new project, basically, right? So I, I you know, I, was, I had all these notes, I had all these experiences, but then I had to have a job. <laughs> So I moved to Miami for a job, um, and then, you know, it, it fell apart. Within three months, I was basically told, well, we don't have that job for you anymore that we promised you for longer. Um, welcome to the Academy <laughs> today. Um, so, so then I was basically, I had to find work again, and I, I went, I, you know, was basically, I, I was lucky enough, fortunate enough, that, and had people pulling for me so that I could come back to Seattle. Now again, I had no idea what was going to happen. I was thinking about the church. I was writing about the church at that time, and I, I knew that I wanted to develop this book. Um, but basically, that's when um, 2012 was when Joyful Exiles, that was the first website that I saw that had posted, um, you know, Paul Petri was the pastor that was shunned, that was this big event. It comes up in my second chapter, so I won't detail it too much. Um, but, but there's, you know, uh, there's ways through which my own story and my own sense of um, God's hand um, 
it had a visceral impact on me because I, you know, and I don't want to use the language of exceptionalism. There are other people writing books about Mars Hill, and it's you know everybody has stories to tell, and that's great. Um, but in my case, I did not expect to be here. I did not know things would be falling apart the way that they did. I did not know that I would get the kind of access to people that I wound up getting by their own you know s willingness to really take risks in speaking with me. Um, so, so that the, the risk and vulnerability are two components that I speak to and through throughout the book, I would argue as well, because I think that those are really um, important to keep in mind. And then in terms of conviction, so my process of coming under conviction, um, as, I, as I talked to it about it in this presentation, um, was something that I think I realized in that moment was something that could be very easily manipulated and, and exploited, um, and that was really troubling to me. And, I, and that compelled me to reach out. You know, I mean, I, again, I, and there's a long story about why I didn't have access to people to begin with. I had to get Mark's permission to talk to anybody at the church <laughs> because of IRB, the International right, um, Institutional Review Board um, for Human Subjects. So I didn't have permission to talk to people until later when things started falling apart. Then the review board's like, oh yeah, sure, he's almost gone and everything's falling apart. Talk to people. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, in, you know, it's just the logic there. But anyway, institutional logic in general is not something I, I grok very well. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think that we could talk about it also in terms of outside of a religious context, yeah. right? I mean, um, and I would also say that just, I mean, not to defend Mark in any way, but, but he would walk back some of that, right? So, for example, he would say things like, um, you know, about menstruation, right? Or about, oh, if your women's just had a baby, right? Yeah. Like, you might, you might need some downtime, right? Yeah. Um, but... So he was, you know, again, it was, 
I guess what I want, my point is, and what I would like to say is, as much as I read the quotes and the, he said that stuff, but there were times that he could also, or he would walk things back or things would get edited, right? Yeah. Um, such that he didn't sound as bad. Um, you know, the times where I found him most violent is not only from some of the stories that I've heard that don't come out in the book because they were just so personal, but uh, but some of the things that were most disturbing to me were his, it was his online activity. So when I started reading some of his blog posts, again in 2006, um, when I first started you know, investing more time and research into the church, um, what he would say online I found particularly disturbing and, and in some senses more disturbing than what he would allow himself to say on, you know, from the pulpit, right? So he had, he had, you know, I mean, sometimes he didn't have much of a filter, but on occasion he did. <laughs> and, and so... What were some of the violent things that he would do on his blog? Well, I mean, so, I, you know, I, I referenced that effeminate, you know, there's so many effeminate men within churches and those men are worthless men, um, that kind of stuff. You know, but, but then configured in different forms. So, for example, he made a joke on some blog about, um, you know, he's a male lesbian, you know, so he loves women, you know. And um, this was in a debate that he was having with Brian McLaren, who is a part of the Emergent Church. Um, and it was on Leadership Network, this blog that, at that time. And Driscoll was a part of that movement to an extent, to a degree. Um, but he would come out with these kind of very violent, very um, anti-gay sort of diatribes of this nature because he was so upset because he thought that pastors who wouldn't come out as hardcore against um, what he called the homosexual lifestyle um, were, you know, not really pastors, basically. They were, those were the effeminate, worthless men, right? Wow. Um, so there was this constant kind of, like, othering other, you know, pastors, other kinds of teachings, such that his own sort of teaching was revered as, you know, the only real way to, you know, understand the gospel. Sounds like he was a circus master. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting way to think of him, that's for sure. Um, I want to go this way, so can I, yes? Uh, yeah, I, I live in Ballard, not that far from the church, and I would see the lines there, right, and I was like, hey, what's going on here? So, I finally went one time, um, and I, mean, I clearly saw what it was right away, right? I mean, I mean this is a charlatan, right? H how we treated women, the way he talked. I mean, it was just clearly obvious. It was a hip place, you know, like a lot of young people. I, I, I couldn't understand why people could see it, right? It, it was just, it was so obvious. And and uh, how, how how is that? I, 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 I don't get it. I mean, it was cool. They had cool music, right? And, I don't think I use that quote in my book, but yeah. <laughs> I, I told my buddy, I said, it's kind of fun to look at gals who go to church here, right? It's awesome, but, 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 but it was Well, but that's part it was, of it, actually. It's wrong, right? it was, it was, I don't know how you could not see Well, I don't, I don't mind me to be accusatory, but I don't know how you couldn't see that what it was. I did. I, I mean, I think that's why I wrote this book. <laughs> um, but at the same time, again, I, I'm an anthropologist, okay? And that, that does give me a certain kind of space that I'm in when I do field work. And the way that I approach the field as an anthropologist is not as judgmental, um, as open 
as curious. I mean, in some ways, I was making myself very vulnerable to all of this too, right? Um, it ha again, it had a profound effect on me. I'm still processing my own experiences at the church, frankly. Um, so, you know, believe me, I felt it, okay? Um, and I'm a feminist, and I have, you know, I teach in women's studies, so I got, you know, I have some affinity and understanding. Um, but again, I I'm an anthropologist, and so my, my sort of motivation was to go in and see what was happening, and that's it. You know, I, without judgment, without, again, condescension, without, you know, thinking of people as dumb or whatever simply because they believe something I don't, right? I mean, in this point in time particularly, I think this book is pretty amazing, you know, because we're in this moment where the divisions and polarizations and all this tribalism and blah, blah, blah going on, you know, so, so stepping, stepping across those kinds of, like, boundaries of worldview or... Um, notions of what's right, um, I think we're very important, and, and, I, and I value, and I think that that is still important. Taking that risk is important as a person. Yeah, but so, you know, wrong, why would you, why would you look, look at it, right? If you know, like, one plus one does not equal three, so why, why would you continue well, thinking it might, or, 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 or investigating why? Well, of course, like, I mean, again, again, I don't like to use terms like wrong, though. Okay, I would use terms like. Would you use a term like right with that with that term? I don't like to get in this like moralizing, okay, yeah, binary kind of dynamic. For those of us who are church people, we really want to know what in the world is happening at Mars Hill. I mean, what is so seductive about it? And I don't mean sexually seductive, but seductive. What what draws people in? I mean, I am so grateful that Jessica studied. So I've been reading every word she's written for the last 10 years. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> I want to understand what it is that he was able to do. It's just fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I took a challenge on. I mean, let's look at it that way. Instead of interrogating me for why I've decided to do this, how about I took a challenge on as a feminist in a, in, you know, and again, I'm an anthropologist in the United States. There aren't a lot of anthropologists who do work. I usually get labeled as sociologist because sociologists are supposedly the ones who do work in the United States, the anthropologists go away. I went away in my own way, <laughs> okay? <laughs> I, did a, I did another kind of journey. Um, and I think that's, it's really rich. To, it's, it's really rich because of that, because I challenged myself and I pushed myself to be open to the possibility that there isn't a right or wrong here. That's not a bad way to go when you're looking at the world. I'm gonna take something over here. Um, so living in Seattle for a while, I've heard a lot of troubling things from like Mars Hill um, and a lot of outlandish statements coming out of there just in the news. I haven't really followed it that much, but hearing it, not so much different than our current political climate. Um, so I was wondering, in your opinion, since you tracked it, what do you think was the beginning of the end for Mark, and where was the ultimate demise? Oh, my. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is another difficult question because, um, because I don't think there's one thing. There wasn't one event or one sermon or one, yeah. Um, you know, I, I make the argument in the book that there's, there's different kinds of dynamics of power and control ongoing through different kinds of mechanisms. Again, it's not just Driscoll being a jerk, right? It's not just Driscoll's authority. It's a, it's a lot of things that were going on, um, you know, again, in terms of the atmosphere of the place, 
um, in terms of the kinds of shunning practices, the ways that people were, um, again, labeled gossips or, or wolves, right, for various reasons. Um, mostly, again, with speaking out against Mark, but for other reasons as well. So, you know, it just, I don't think that there was one thing. I think everybody who probably is in the church has their own narrative about what that might be. But I've, I've spoken to people who stayed in the church for until the very end, um, who were there from the earliest, you know, years, and asked, you know, when did you know something was wrong, right? When did you, you know, that's a question I would ask. And, and so many times, or when did you have suspicions that like something wasn't quite right? You know? um, and people would say, from the beginning, <laughs> right? So I mean, but I get that. Again, like I get that because, because this is, I mean, again, the element of, of sort of, you know, there never being that one thing that went wrong, I think is a really, it makes a much more interesting story, you know? Um, just like I don't think all of our problems can be traced back to one election of late that I might mention, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly, see, exactly. So I think that that's a false narrative to try to like hang your hat on one particular moment or event. Um, yes? At this point, it seems pretty one-dimensional to me. What do you know about his life? What might have triggered him to create this? What did he was it a need for attention, or was it his way of working out his own neuroses, or what was it all about? I, mean, I thankfully, I do not want to get in Mark Driscoll's head. It's <laughs> just simple information about what the five, ten years before the truth was established, what his life was like. And what, well, was it a, was he really trying to change the world, or was he trying to change himself? I'm not a psychologist, thankfully. Again, I'm not a psychologist. Um, you know, I would say that, you, I mean, there's, you can find information on Driscoll out there. He was very, he was very happy to talk about himself. Um, I'm sorry? Um, he's, yeah, he, he was, he was um, I think it was Federal Way area. Oh, sorry, he, yeah, that's right. He was born, that's right, he was born in, like, North Dakota, I want to say, right? And then, but he moved here in the early years. What? They tried, they tried, but it didn't work out. It's really hard to get a case against a church into a court. It's yeah. very difficult. Is he a wealthy man? What is he doing now? <laughs> so many questions about Mark Driscoll's life. I just, <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> um, again, it's not just about, the book is about more than just him and his, his story, but, um, but you know, he's in Scottsdale, Arizona, he's preaching. How old is he? He's roughly my age, so I'm 47. Okay. Yeah. He's, real, he's real go getter, obviously. He's a go getter. <laughs> no, he did start very young. That is absolutely, yes. That is absolutely true. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Yes. I'm still chuckling inwardly about age 17. I'm glad you liked that part. It goes gone too far when you have your own rating system. Yeah, the result source certainly was one of. And there was a cavalcade of things around that time too. I mean, plagiarism 
right? Accusations that were verified. Um, you know, the results source, there was, a, there was a fund called the Global Fund that people started to discover it wasn't so global after all. <laughs> so um, so there, were, there were multiple, and then again, uh, again, leaders started leaving. And when leaders started leaving and then posting these testimonies, I, I would argue that that had a huge impact on, on the church's dissolution. So, I mean, there is a sense of, you know, I, we want to take care. There was so much love for the people within the church and also, you know, the purpose of the church, you know, that people were invested in, you know. I mean, it's an evangelical church, so, um, you know, trying to spread the gospel. I mean, that was a genuine desire. Um, so when people, when leaders started leaving, they had a lot of concern for the people who were left behind still. You know, they had a lot of concern for Mark himself um, because they saw things that just weren't right and they were, you know, so, so there's a lot of like concern and care. Um, and, and so I would argue there's, again, like a many, many different, um, you know, factors into why the church dissolved. I mean, some people will go back to 2007 when Paul Petri um, was fired and he was put on trial. Again, it's, it's, it's the chapter, second chapter of my book goes into that into some detail. Um, so some people would mark that as the beginning of the end. You know, again, some people would mark something like earlier. You know, it's just really... So I have... I, I stay away from, like, this is when it all went wrong because, again, it just wasn't... It's not like there was one story that, like, across all the people I spoke with, there was one thing that happened. You know, it just didn't... But you're right. Like, in that 2000... Um, uh, 14, 13, 14, that time frame, started, yeah, things, there were just multiple things that started happening, multiple scandals, I guess, is a good word for it. Who else? Yes. Quick yes. Um, I was really pleased on the New York Times, um, I the story wide open uh, a couple of years ago. And I was waiting for a local writer um, to write a book, so. Yay! Um, <laughs> Here I am! <laughs> a couple quick questions. Um, was Mark Driscoll propped up by a lot of his ministers, and B, didn't he embrace and embezzle quite a bit of money, and C, did you ever see any people of color, Hispanic people? Yeah, it's, it was absolutely predominantly white. Um, and that comes up in the book in a couple different ways. Um, so that's in there. Um, I take up the question of, of race, and particularly in some of the anti-Islamic um, rhetoric that would come out from the pulpit. And, and again, in these sort of off-the-cuff ways that if you weren't paying attention, it would be very easy to just sort of let slide or not really. Um, so, so that's the answer to the last part, I guess. Um, ministers propping him up. What do you mean by propping him up? Um, covering up his scandals. Well, there was a marketing team, and he had a lot of PR help for sure. Um, but again, I, I don't want to say it, it wasn't all leadership, you know. I mean, he had a, a core of a few men who were very, you know, the executive elders is their title. Um, and they were, you know, um, I would argue probably the ones that were most um, propping him up, if you were, you know. Um, but... The, I mean, a lot of the leaders were also very downtrodden throughout all of this time. There was a lot of bullying. I mean, it, come, it doesn't come out as much as in what I read today, but there was a lot of bullying of the men. 
So when I'm taking up this question of the gendered um, sort of labor, men were also very much exploited in this situation. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I read some, I heard some stories about bullying that just were horrifying. And it was, it was nonstop, it was constant. Um, Mark Mark mostly, although I mean, again, some there's some trickle down factor there, right? And then again, there were certain pastors that were more maligned than others. The men who worked in pastoral roles on the ground with people, so that ground war, you know, Mark was the air war, (laughs) the pyrotechnics of the sermon and getting it globally distributed and all that. Um, Whereas the ground war were the pastors who were working with people in community doing counseling, right? Like providing care, again. Those were the men that were the most (laughs) put in their place by Mark on a very consistent basis in a very horrifying manner. Um, So I, yeah, I, that's, that's in there. Um, Again, some of the personal, you know, anecdotes or stories I didn't put in because I just didn't want to, you know, again, I want to respect the vulnerability that people shared with me. So I, you know, want to protect people. like the church itself did. Um, so, so yeah, you know, I, and what, sorry, what was the second part? I don't remember. Oh, the, so the result source, I mean, you know, that was a key moment in terms of, you know, how much did Mark actually pocket from that? Um, you know, I, I have some figures in my book that I, I found that seemed very solid to me in terms of, like, what ties actually went through that process of like supporting the book's bestseller status. Um, But again, I don't, you know, I was very careful not to use anything that could be construed as conjecture conjecture, or could not be backed up somehow. So I I saw some figures about how much he may have pocketed or may not have pocketed personally, but I didn't want to go there because I don't want, I mean, people will find all kinds of reasons to not like the book or to say, you know, she's not Christian, she doesn't know, you know, <laughs> she doesn't get it. Um, you know, so I, I, that's the last thing I wanted to do, is to try to put in anything that I could not be sure about. Was there a membership fee to join the church? A membership fee? No, there was tithes, though. You, you paid tithes, and again, you gave volunteer labor. You expected to tithe if you didn't, if you weren't, when you're giving your time, you were expected to tithe. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty common, right. yeah. Yes. I'm trying to see a takeaway. I really don't have a lot of experience with this. I mean, I've heard of Mars Hill, and I don't come from the Christian faith, so I have a different perspective. Mm-hmm. But you have a comment, or you're describing a microcosm of the church. Is there a takeaway, or do you have some thoughts on churches institutionally or church going that you take from this? Because there, there was some attraction to people who were Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm from, from my perspective, which is a little bit further outside what I see here, I'm trying to understand if, if there's a comment or conclusion. Or <laughs> um, so, I mean, a takeaway about churches, I mean, for me, the takeaways have so much more to do with our current political climate, honestly. So I, I think of it in terms of, you know, someone like a Jordan Peterson who's come into some renown of late, right, um, and how the masculinist ideology that he's, and the way that he's doing it um, resonates in some ways with what Driscoll was doing. Um, 
in terms of churches, I mean, you know, I think one of the, the salient points here is that, you know, an evangelical independent church, as we were talking about earlier, has a lot of power to do what they want. You know, the leadership... They don't have that if they have people who are ascribers and subscribers to what they offer. I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> you have power when people give you power. Nobody owns power. Nobody owns power. Power isn't a thing. Um, it's a dynamic. It's a process. And so what I was trying, the point I was trying to make um, is that, you know, I would say that independent evangelical churches, you know, if the leadership structure isn't um, sound and the men in those positions, if it's a kind of church with a complementarian doctrine that I just described to you, um, if the men in those positions are not, to use the language of good, um, to, you know, are not men who should be in those positions, such as Mark, I would argue, um, that then becomes a, a really, really dangerous place to be. So I think, I mean, my takeaway is that evangelical churches, I guess, um, you know, need to be careful about the leadership structures, especially when they're in this independent kind of mode. I mean, I, I don't know what else to say about some kind of, I don't really understand what other kind of takeaway I could say in relationship to the... I'm just wondering around what the draw is and to whom it is, because we all have either a want or a need to make a connection that we go and join whatever the church of our choice is. And when you talk about the structure, I'm kind of forming this as I speak, that this has an appeal to people who have some need for whom this is a fulfillment. Yeah, again, I, to me, that sounds very close to being condescending because then if those people have that need, what's wrong with them, you know? Um, I would say that, of course, I mean, there's, like, there's so many reasons people go to church. There's so many reasons that people went to Mars Hill. So, I mean, I had students at University of Washington who went to Mars Hill, um, and they went because their friends went. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know how more profound I can be than that, you know, like, so, so there's, you know, there's lots of different reasons why people go to churches. Um, I certainly cannot speak for all of them. Um, you know, I could see Mars Hill being very attractive, especially to younger people, um, especially the time that it rose up, you know, in that late, or sorry, yeah, like late 90s, early 2000s, mid 2000s, because of the way it was so savvy in using visual and digital media. It was very, very good. Um, it, was a, a, it was a church made for Seattle in that respect. Um, you know, the church had the IT labor pool that we have, you know, and could use that. Um, and that was, and people who wanted to be in that labor pool, who wanted industry jobs, could hone their skills and develop them at Mars Hill. So, I mean, again, that's another reason, right? I mean, there's lots of reasons why people would go to churches, but, you know, in my experience with relationship to Mars Hill, um, you know, those, that, there's a couple right there. Um, but I don't, you know, I, I never wanted to think, to think of it in terms of a de deficiency or, or anything like that. Uh, yes? How do you harness How can I really think this way? How do you harness your own 
have to obviously be very curious, but how do you harness your own distaste for something that you're hearing? Yeah. Um, I seem to have a special talent for that. <laughs> It makes me a good anthropologist. I mean, you know, I honestly, I like stories. I'm a reader. I mean, you know, I'm an academic, so I, you know, I like books. But, but I like listening to people. I like listening to people's stories, and that makes me a very good anthropologist, I think. Um, I probably could have been a therapist and made a lot more money, but whatever. <laughs> that time's passed. Um, but, you know, I, so I, um, I think that for me, you know, it was a very isolating project. I didn't have a lot of people. Nobody wanted to go to Mars Hill with me, you know. None of my friends were like, yeah, I want to go on Sunday. You know, like, that wasn't... Um, and then also, you know, I really wanted, like, I, I had offers, like, some people said things like, oh, I'll go with you and pretend to be your husband, and you could wear a ring and see if it, it's any different. And I was just adamantly opposed to that. Like, I just did not want to even pretend to be somebody or something else, even as an experiment. Um, and again, I got richer sourced material by virtue of being very honest and open about who I was, you know. Um, but how I dealt with it, I don't, even, I don't even know if I dealt with it. I think that's what I'm saying is like I'm still processing this experience. It has been, especially, um, you know, the last year I was writing, writing, writing uh, like nuts. Um, and that's also very isolating. Um, but, you know, I really haven't had a lot of time to just kind of be and say what what the heck just happened, you know, <laughs> like you know, so so. Well, I, yeah, sometimes, but I do that with classes too. <laughs> you know, I was gonna say I was gonna say I don't know. I like beer and whiskey. I don't, you know, like I mean, we all have our, our ways of just sort of like processing what happened throughout our day, I guess. But but it was for me, it was writing too, right? I mean, I'm writing during this time, and and so processing this through writing. I mean, I was taking notes certainly during sermons and afterwards, um, you know, and. And there were times where I might put in my own editorial two cents, you know, but... difficult for you to just say, really? If you heard somebody say something just astounding, like the women's role, et cetera. Well, that, that, that thing that I told you right there, yeah, yeah. that was that moment. You know, that moment, and that was the first sermon I went to. I, I talk about it in the intro, and I'm not kidding. I mean it when I say this is true. Um, I knew that my first book would be about Mars Hill. That was that moment. Thank you. Um, did women in Marshall have any leadership uh, roles, like Sunday school teachers or choir directors? Even more. Even more. No, so, so there was a lot of programming. I mean, there was a lot of gender seminars. You know, I mentioned the Women's Training Day that I attended. I attended, a, you know, other events of that nature. And women were, I mean, that's the thing. Women were very strong within the church. I mean, I, I've said to um, women that, I got to know through the church that they taught me theology in ways that I never got from Driscoll. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think, yeah, <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, but I, you know, I really, I, I value um, the women who did that work there, and um, they certainly were leaders and strong. I, it was unfortunate, though, that I did also hear stories about them also being maligned despite the fact that they were taking on so much labor for the church. And that story I told, I mean, that was heartbreaking. Heartbreaking to hear 
you know, a woman who's, testi who's, who's testifying to sexual sin and talking about being a whore in terms of not only, right, because she's giving so much to the church and, you know, that sense of burnout and that sense of, and again, this is something I think in this political economy a lot of us can actually relate to. So when I talk about labor in the, in the book and in the subtitle, again, the book isn't about me, but I do put myself in the scenes quite, you know, at least enough, I think, to provide a narrative, but then also, again, in an ethical sense, um, because I wanted to be reciprocal in terms of the vulnerabilities that were being shared with me. So I wanted to present myself as vulnerable on the page. And, um, you know, I think that that, you know, the relationships that I, I did, even with the women that I mentioned in this lunch and such, or this at this training day, um, you know, they were really, you know, kind, even though I think there was, there's always a sort of layer of suspicion or, you know, um, so that there was always that kind of feeling. Um, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm very open, non-Christian, I'm an anthropologist, I'm interested in marriage, you know, and how you, you know, so I would say things of that. But that wasn't necessarily the turn off. It wasn't, that wasn't like, I think just a general sense of suspicion, you know, was sort of, you know, it, it, it was sort of ran through things, unfortunately. Um, but anyway, yes, there were women leaders, and they were very strong, and, and it's unfortunate that the, their labor did not get recognized as it should have been. Okay, yes. Unfortunately, yes. I mean, so so there are things that are different. I mean, um, you know, the church isn't as big, um, and the church in Scottsdale that he's um, founded there now. Um, so it's not as big. His reach, but he's got a lot of media presence, a lot. He's got his own website. You know, he still uses sermons from Mars Hill. Um, I just get very upset by that because that was on other people's backs, that on the people that he betrayed and then refused to repent to. That upsets me. That's when I get the most upset um, to think through that. But then I've also heard that, um, you know, I had, um, I had the book, the book uh, was, the intro to the book was sent out via Duke um, on Twitter. And within the first day of that being accessible to the public, somebody emailed me from Scottsdale and basically was like begging me not to reveal any identifying information, but the word that I received from this person who then wanted to call me once we exchanged um, an email um, correspondence, um, he called me and basically was like, there's, there's some really horrible things going on down here too. And, and asking me to come down there. And I was just like, oh, no. So I'm not, you know, I'm not doing a part two. There's not going to be a sequel. Not, I just don't have that. You know, I, and I'm not interested in tracking Mark Driscoll. You know, I'm just not. That's not my goal in life to follow him around forever. You know, I just I don't. It's not, you know, again, I don't want to get in his head. I don't want to know what he eats in the morning. You know, it's like not. Um, but, but that was sad. And again, it makes me upset because he, he didn't get anything but a slap on the wrist, basically. He was able to retire in fairly good standing. I mean, of course, there was, I mean, there were the scandals that came out. There was a New York Times piece. There were, you know, there was a lot of media attention at first. But there wasn't actually anything institutionally done 
that would, you know, prevent him from wreaking more, you know, pain, harming more people. Um, so he's not the, the, you know, the young angry prophet, you know, I mean, he used, himself uses that language. I'm not a young, and he's not young. Um, so no, um, and he's not as angry sounding. I mean, again, he's very savvy. So he's rebranded his image. He would talk about this at the very end of his, uh, the time at Mars Hill that he wanted to be the spiritual father. That was his next. So yeah, um, so you see that now running through what he's doing now at Trinity. You know, his family's in the mix a lot more. There's a lot more family like photo ops. Um, a lot more family involvement on the website. And Grace, you know, his wife, was definitely more active like around the peasant princess time that I, I talked about in this presentation. And her role definitely started to become more predominant even at Mars Hill. But I would argue that it's even more so now because again, it's so much about family. It's so much about, it's, it's basically trying to work against anybody finding Mars Hill <laughs> and you know so I am glad that the book is coming out now but at the same time again like it's not I don't have a vendetta against Mark Driscoll like I'm not you know I'm just upset for the reasons that I just mentioned because again there's still more harm being done you know people are having to see their the sermons from Mars Hill still out there see him blogging on evangelical sites you know it's just it's not okay um, and it's not, a, I mean, it doesn't speak very well for evangelical Christianity in the United States right now either, frankly. So, um, yeah, that's, that's a really sorry state of affairs in general. Yes? Um, I'm curious, you said you, like, you said a couple times you're still processing what your experience was when you talked a little bit about what um, Mark Driscoll and his family are doing now. I'm curious about what the other folks are doing, the folks that you've interviewed, especially the ones that were professionally tied to the church, maybe their pastors. Like, how did so, so I'll talk about that in a general sense. I would say that, you know, um, repentance is um, a concept that comes up in the book quite a bit. And I talk about it being weaponized, right? And you could hear some elements of that here. Um, but I also talk about it as a theological concept that is very powerful in the sense that when it's actually done, <laughs> it's transformative. And so one of the things, and this is how I'm going to answer this question, one of the things that I was really um, taken by, impressed by, respected, and just otherwise, you, you heard like me like crying with the pastors, and you heard right in these interviews, or um, I, you know, I, I was very moved by the ways that, especially the men leaders um, who came out and, 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 you know, posted on Repentant Pastor, for example, or their own confessions and various other sort of sites, um, would talk about repenting. And not just talk about it like, oh yeah, I'm sorry and I'm gonna change things, but actually talking about their process of walking that walk, because that's important, right? And there's, you know, so it's not just like saying, I'm sorry and like moving on with your day, or like I, that video that I described at the very beginning, you know, where Mark's like, I'm sorry, but I don't know who to, right? Um, you know, so, so it's actually doing that. <laughs> it's doing that in private, personally, and recognizing the sin, right, that, that, that happened between you. And then beyond saying, I'm sorry, it's actually starting to walk different, right? And, um, and so I saw men doing that, you know, and that was beautiful to me. Um, so I would say that 
you know, people are certainly still processing too. Um, I don't want to speak for other people and where they're at right now. I mean, one, as I just mentioned, I've been writing for the last year, plus like teaching, you know, in order to afford an apartment in Seattle, <laughs> you know, on a non-salary contract. So, um, so, you know, I have my own, you know, things I've been doing and busy with and trying to negotiate myself. But I would say that, you know, people are redeeming um, a lot of the work that they did previously through what they're doing now. So if somebody's working and was marketing marketing, for example, at Mars Hill and doing a really good job at it, like they might be doing it now, but trying to do it differently, keeping in mind what happened that was not okay, right? Um, same thing with people working in ministry. You know, I, you know I, I, people are working in ministry again in different kinds of churches too, not just evangelical churches, but also more Anglican um, driven. Um, so, you know, there's, there's different people doing different things in ministry, um, but again, with the idea that I want to make this work better, this, I want to do better, I want this to be better, right? I want to learn from my experiences and I want to, you know, transform, right, what happened previously in such a way that I'm actually living it out differently. And again, I think that's really beautiful. And so I would say that I can't speak for how people are processing exactly. And again, everybody's in different places. I, you know, people who, who stayed until the very end had a lot more, you know, they're just in a different time frame than people who left, say, in 2007, right? Um, so anyway, yeah, that's, that's the best way I can answer that, I think. Yes? I wanted to give any comments on this, the, the fact that you might have heard Warren Brockmark, who was doing a lot of plagiarism, he was basically the go-to guy now that Mark Driscoll is blogging on the Patreon platform, without any explanation, he has now been dropped. And his I just heard about that. All over the place. And also now, Mark Driscoll, even though no evangelical publishing company will, will touch him, Charisma, which happens to be basically the publishing arm of the Trump administration, is now publishing his next book. So it seems that he has now moved over, as you know, with the prosperity gospel, with the Gateway Church, the Church yes. of Scottsdale, more prosperity. It seems he's abandoned all of his Calvinist teachings. I mean, no good evangelical would go to charisma. Right, right. Yeah, it, I mean, I find it, that is actually one aspect to, to following up on what Mark is doing. <laughs> Where's Mark now? Um, I think that the way that he's negotiating those theological um, bridge, you know, like divisions and differences, um, I find that fascinating. You know, the next book to be is, um, that's coming out in October is called Spirit-Filled Jesus. Um, so to hear him talking about the Spirit that way and talking about the Holy Spirit that way so that it resonates with the charismatic crowd, um, you know, is really, that's interesting. That's, so, so like the moments where I actually take some pleasure in still following up with this is, is actually those moments where I'm like paying attention to how he's doing that. Because he's still doing a negotiation, I would argue, but he's obviously never gonna be with the reformed people again, right? I mean, they're never gonna take, I mean, Tim Keller's not gonna take him back. Right. Yeah, so, um, so yeah, that's interesting to me. Like, that part is really interesting. And also the politicalness of that. You know, so like you said, I mean, these, the, the charismatic crowd are also the ones that Trump has in his, you know, sort of amorphous faith advisory board, and I would argue that they're probably the most predominant, although there's people from different kinds of, um, you know, there's some uh, Baptists and such. But, um, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see if Mark tries to make more of a politicized kind of move, too, um, with this administration being what it is right now. 
but I don't know if he can because of everything that's happened. So that's also interesting to me is to see how he might be negotiating a little bit more of a you know, political role in ways that he had never done previously. Who, yes? Um, you kind of touched on this already, but um, I wonder if you have any other thoughts on how, like, your identities and beliefs and how you were open with that um, affected your research, the relationships that you were able to have with people, you know, the books that you wrote. Yeah. Um, so there's a really long end note that speaks to my own sort of religious upbringing and process, if you will, journey. Um, and I suppose I would call it more spiritual than religious in, in the sense that I, I sort of resonate with a Buddhist perspective or worldview probably more than any other. Um, and I had, so, but I was raised a Catholic. So I talk about being raised a Catholic in a very kind of, you know, Midwest cultural kind of way where it wasn't really, you know, we were going to church and I did do catechisms and such, but it wasn't so strict that I was going like every single week kind of thing. And then I went to Japan and I studied Buddhism there um, and started practicing meditation. And so in answer to your question, at least this part of it, um, I think that my engagement with the bodied, embodiedness of meditation um, has actually had a huge impact on this in ways that I didn't really recognize at first. Um, and also the fact that I couldn't talk to people. So those two, right? Like here I am, like very, like I almost put myself in a place, you know, where it's like, okay, I'm really gonna engage things through my body and I can't talk to people. <laughs> you know, again, I would casually, but I couldn't actually interview. So, so the kinds of information that I was, you know, gathering, um, which was much more an embodied, you know, sort of process. I would argue than perhaps even some other ethnographic projects would be, right? Um, the other component to that, people, relationships. You know, I, I think, you know, just harking back to what I was just previously speaking through, um, with relationship to where people are now kind of thing. I mean, I value my relationships so much with people from Mars Hill. There was a time, that time that, I, that, that anonymous video, right, when that happened, I mean, I was seriously freaked out. <laughs> I did not know how to deal with that feeling that I had. And it was prolonged. It wasn't like, oh, I, you know, I'd go to bed and then I'd wake up the next day and I felt better. Like I felt more myself again. That did not happen. And so, and I, you know, I think that it does come out that like this was a very prolonged, very disturbing um, process of really questioning like what is going on for me right now with this? Like why am I feeling, that? you know, again, how am I feeling? Like how is this happening, right? Um, and then reaching out to people in that moment of such vulnerability and such like um, just disturbed, just being disturbed. And I mean, it was a long email. <laughs> um, and so I'm very thankful. I mean, again, this pastor didn't know me. This was on Facebook, like on, you know, just Messenger, you know, just some, I'm thankful that he saw it, you know, I mean, so many things could have gone horribly awry in this situation, right, where, uh, or people weren't receptive to me being at that protest, um, you know, so I feel very grateful, because I don't know how I would have processed this at all, right, let alone written the book that I did. Um, you know, I had, again, I had beginning elements, because I had that research from 2006 to 2008, um, but the, the, the relationships I had with people and developed with people, and still am developing, you know, people are still, you know, um, 
calling me or I'm meeting new people through the church and this book now, and that's really great. Um, so, you know, I'm just really grateful because it's, it wouldn't have been, I think, as rich. I wouldn't have taken the risks that I did in putting myself in the scene as much. You know, I would have been a lot more, I think, scared to do that. Um, so, you know, having that kind of ethical responsibility um, born through relationship in a, in a way that, you know, the Institutional Review Board could never possibly, right? That's, again, that's not something that they would get, right? Um, was a really amazing thing, you know? And I'm very grateful for that because I don't know how I would have made it. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have written the book that I did, but I don't know how I would have actually processed things myself. I needed to be in that community at that point in time. And I was, I mean, I was, there was a time where I was pretty much, I mean, yes, I had people around my home that I was still seeing as on a friendship basis, and I saw students because I was teaching, but I was hanging out with Mars Hill people a lot, you know? Like, I just wanted to be around people from the church. It helped me, you know? So, so I'm really thankful for that. There, there's, I mean, so, so again, different people in different places and processes, right? And I mean, I think religious identity is also can be, at least, it can be very fluid and, you know, your own story that you shared, right? Uh, my story, right? So, um, so some people didn't want to go to church for quite some time after that experience. Um, some people have started going to churches again. Again, not necessarily a straight-up evangelical non-denominational church, but something that might be a little bit more structured in terms of its liturgy, in terms of um, you know the, uh, the the leadership structure of the church, etc. Um, the kinds of prayers, just a little bit more of a ritual involved. Um, but you know, and then yes, there are some people who just said, "I'm done." You know, I'm done. But it also split up marriages, you know. I mean, there's, I can't tell you how many times I, I you know, again, Marcel has been so, such a big part of Seattle's recent history. Um, I just run into people all the time who say, when I, when I mention what I do, if it comes up, um, you know, oh, I knew somebody who went to Marcel, or oh, yeah, I went to Marcel a few times. And then, you know, and then it's like, I went to Marcel a few times, but I was never a member, yeah. you know. Um, and, or, you know, oh, interesting, yeah, my friend had some interesting experiences there, what's your book about? And I would just say something brief, like the gender and sexuality politics of the church, just a little snapshot. Um, and then it would start coming out, oh, yeah, actually, the sex in their marriage, in her marriage, got really kind of messed up, and it really messed up their marriage, and then more stories would come out. And this literally happened to me at the dentist, <laughs> you know, like, I'm thinking particularly of this one story at the dentist with my hygienist. You know, so, so, oh, yeah, her marriage was really messed up, and then they went to Mark, and it made things worse, and, you know, so, so it, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a part of Seattle's DNA right now, I would argue, right? Like, there's, there's no way of, I think the, that's what's great about this book coming out now, too. I think there's a, it's great for the city, hopefully. Oh, gosh, now this sounds so self-agree. Um, but I, hopefully, like, people will read it and think, you know, yes, this happened here, you know? This happened here. Actually, I just saw Duke sends me reviews all the time, and um, I just and I'm thankful that I'm getting reviews. It's getting reviewed. Um, that I just read a review. I just received it yesterday, and, and saw something to the effect of in the review, like, um, I'm so glad that this book came out because it's so easy to think it's just all gone, like it just disappeared. So, and I and I would argue it has not disappeared. You know, it's a very much still a presence within the city.
I'm going to see if there's anybody new. Okay, yes. Uh, so, so when you're writing this book, did you have to answer the question, you know, ethically, writing this book, will this give Mark more power? Or will this, would this, would this be something that would help him? And not, not, not for some people, but for others, because they, they still uh, would like that kind of a teaching and a ministry that they gave a men power. Did, how, 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 did you, how did you balance that? Mm-hmm. Um, using his language, like I did in this presentation, a lot. <laughs> I don't have to embellish what Mark said, right? But his language is what he wants the church. From framing and the way that I frame it, oh, right. right? You know, I'm fr- you heard the presentation, so I mean, I'm actually making arguments while using his language. So, you know, the framing of the book, I would say, does not lead anything open to interpretation in terms of, but I mean, I can't, I can't make people read the book the way I want them to read the book. I mean, people are gonna have different responses. The book is gonna have a life of its own. Um, and I'm totally, you know, like, that's good. I don't, I don't mind that part. But I, like, for example, when I was working with Duke, I didn't, <laughs> so his name's in the title of the subtitle. I didn't want his name in the subtitle. They wanted it in the subtitle. Um, I said no pictures of people on the cover. I certainly not Mark Driscoll's picture. He's on the cover. <laughs> but it's a cool picture. You know, you can, I guess it's still there. Um, you know, it's cool because, like, it's this very turgid, dark, and he's sort of, you know, moving and in shadow, and, and I like his reflection in the camera. So they did a good job with the way that they still used his name in ways that I was, that's one of the ways that I was ethically thinking about. I don't want people, like, I don't want him getting more publicity through my book. But of course he is. I mean, so you know. Still kind of, maybe it's probably a better word than susceptible, but someone still still susceptible to that kind of influence that he can deliver would be able to look at the book and say, oh, that's who it is. I'm hoping so. I'm hoping so. I hope it has that effect. Absolutely. I mean, again, I'm very upset by the ways that people got trampled down. Um, So so my own kind of political onus, again, is not to demonize Driscoll, but yes, to shed light on what is abusive here. You know, and hopefully that would go beyond just Driscoll and churches that he's a part of, right? Hopefully that will go beyond, you know, again, I think there's other figures that are not religious per se. Well, Jordan Peterson is some kind of religious. <laughs> I don't know what kind of Christian he is. Um, but, you know, there's, there's other figures that you can also look to that are, are providing this kind of rhetoric for men in particular um, that has a very masculinist ideological on- onus. Um, so there's plenty of people out there in this current climate to glom onto if you want. Um, but yeah, I'm hoping that this book will then perhaps, you know, um, open up some eyes to what might be really pernicious about this kind of rhetoric, this kind of dynamic. Um, so that's the hope. But again, I can't control that. Uh-huh. Uh, parallels with past situations like this because there have been several. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, what are, what are some key, key things that are happening? Well, 
I mean, I, I bring in the televangelists' scandals at the end of the book, when I'm talking about scandals at the church, actually. Um, and I think Baker definitely plays, I mean, again, it's not that long, but it, it's a section. Um, you know, parallels. I mean, I think the ways that the media industry has changed have shifted. The shifts have been quite dramatic because of the internet. You know, um, so I would argue that there's definitely like I use the phrase, and it's something I can't. It's not mine. Um, I use it from a pastor and blogger, a Christian, um, who came up with the term of the evangelical um, industrial complex, right? <laughs> Which is like building off of like the military industrial complex. So, so it's a, it's a self-feeding mechanism through which like in terms of Mark, right? Celebrity pastors will, um, in Mark's case, uh, will create scandal or create controversy or, or get some kind of like shock value that then becomes something that becomes very sensationalized and publishable for the media. Um, and we can talk about Christian media, but I mean, his reach was clearly into the secular, you know, media as well. Um, but that mechanism would, you know, feed off of people like Driscoll, feed off the celebrity pastors that would get raised up as these charismatic, special, gifted, you know, but it's really, there's also this industry behind all of that, right? So I, I guess to draw parallels to what was going on with the televangelists, um, you know, I would say that the media has changed, obviously, in lots of ways, but there's certainly that component of, you know, raising people up and feeding off their celebrity in order to, you know, um, in, in this case, though, I would argue that, like, Driscoll was used in a way that was much more um, helpful to a lot of evangelicals who didn't necessarily agree with him, <laughs> you know, because he would get so much attention, right? Um, I got to admit, I'm pretty tired. <laughs> But but that's like my best kind of answer. So the media industry, you know, and the way that um, you know the media industry gets fed through celebrity, um, you know, is is the parallel. But then I would argue that the internet dimension adds another you know layer to all of this, um, and that's complex. And read the book; it's in there. <laughs> okay, thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to me.